Hi, everybody. Welcome to Artifice episode 60. Um, This is the last episode in my little North Texas series that I've been doing during quarantine. And I'm very happy to report that um, starting next week, we'll be back to normal in-person interviews. And I've, I've already conducted a couple of great ones and have an awesome um, June and July planned for you. I can't wait. I'm, I'm very excited for you to hear what I have planned. Um, hopefully coronavirus will let me keep doing one little in-person interview week. Um, today's guest is another friend of mine from college, Mr. Alex Blue. Um, and I don't think I have any other announcements. Um, you know, Masks is out. The digital series, The Masks Experience, is still happening and it's free. And you can get it at emvocals.com slash invite hyphen only. Um, I'm working on a bunch of new projects. I'm already so busy um, with the new stuff that I'm planning. And I, um, I just, I don't know, I feel excited. I feel like... I feel like, you know, good stuff is in the future. Um, Of course, with the exception of gigs continuing to be canceled, um, but, you know, trying to find the silver lining and make the most of it and just keep creating and keep uh, giving you guys great stuff. So I'm going to read you um, Alex's bio now. Alex Blue, the fifth, is a PhD candidate in ethnomusicology at UC Santa Barbara and the 2019-2021 Thurgood Marshall Fellow in African and African American Studies at Dartmouth College. He was recently appointed as Assistant Professor of Music at the College of William and Mary. In his new position at College of William and Mary, Blue will teach courses on race and music, sound studies, and hip-hop production, and will continue his research in the areas of sound, race, identity, and urban space. His dissertation is an ethnographic study of hip-hop in contemporary Detroit, Michigan, that explores narratives of death and dying and illuminates numerous ways the creation, performance, and consumption of hip-hop is used for spatial reorientation, identity formation, and other means in a rapidly changing city. He also served as fellow in the 2018-19 Ithaca College Pre-Doctoral Diversity Scholars Program and has received a number of grants and fellowships in support of his research. Outside of his academic pursuits, Alex enjoys a very full life as a musical jack-of-all-trades, working as a performer, educator, arranger, clinician, designer, consultant, and more for a wide variety of ensembles across a litany of musical styles. He holds a bachelor's in trombone performance from Texas Tech University and a master's in jazz pedagogy from the University of North Texas. You guys, I'm so, so excited to bring you this interview with Alex. Um, It's wonderful and he's wonderful and this North Texas series has been so much fun for me. I hope you guys have loved it too. Um, Yeah, enjoy Alex. Sometimes art feels like magic, pure, visionary, and sometimes it's brought to you in part by focus groups and algorithms. And the makers of art are no different. We're creatives, sure, but we're also salespeople. We need imagination and imitation. We need deep, meaningful connections, but we also have to network. Yep, even if you're an introvert. And that's my point. Balancing vulnerability with veneer is tricky, 
and it's a struggle we don't often share. So let's share. I'm Emily Merrill, and this is Artifice. Today's episode of Artifice is brought to you by The Voice Straw. Back in episode 36, I interviewed Justin Timberlake's voice teacher, the amazing Mindy Pack. Mindy just launched this incredible new product designed to improve the quality of singing and vocal performance through science and proper technique. The Voice Straw is a vocal training tool for singers, actors, and speakers. It helps relieve tension, strain, breathiness, cracking, and flipping in the voice. Scientifically shown to improve singing technique, a must-have tool for anyone looking for vocal success. Head to www.voicestraw.com and enter promo code ARTIFICE10, that's all caps, A-R-T-I-F-I-C-E-1-0, for 10% off your purchase today. start with my guests by asking first what you were like as a creative child (laughs) um you know I think as a child I didn't really recognize myself as a creative child I, I grew up in a family that definitely valued music and the arts but was also very athletic uh so I grew up as like a the sports kid you know, I was playing basketball, I played football, but soccer was my, and it still is my main love, really. Um, so I grew up playing soccer, and that was really my thing. But I guess my mom always had kind of had us like doing art projects or little things like that. And she homeschooled us for a couple of years when I was in elementary school. So it would be, you know, the assignment is to write a story or to like draw this picture or something like that. That's awesome. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I didn't, I wasn't really a musically creative kid. It was more just doing imagination type stuff. Yeah. So I, I love that kind of an answer. Like, you know, I've talked about this on the podcast a lot, but, you know, I, I think, and you know this too, like people, often think that creativity is like talent, you know, or creativity is like the fine arts. And like, of course that's not true. Um, So I like to talk with people about like, you know, what was the origin of like your imagination or like what kind of creative thinking were you doing? Or even like a lot of my guests will give me an answer like, you know, the beginning of my creative mind was just like taking in like, cartoons or like taking in great movies. Um, sure. So uh, w- when did you start like playing music? Um, it wasn't really until kind of later in terms of when kids start playing music, it was later in life. You know, I took my first trombone lesson, might've been in, in sixth grade or something like that, but it wasn't through school. It was through the uh, the Denver Junior Police Band, cool. Um, cool. and I hated it, <laughs> and I never practiced. I did it for maybe a month, and then I stopped and wanted nothing to do with it okay. until okay. high school. And okay. we'll get back there. We'll like con- we'll reconnect back. Okay, that was me interrupting. I'm sorry. Oh, it's fine. So. So yeah, technically, I guess I 
I put a trombone to my face in sixth grade, but I didn't really learn anything. My mom would tell the story differently because, you know, it's moms and they're like, oh, you had this aptitude and you were so great and all this stuff. But that is not the case. I love hearing stories like this again, because it, it, it takes away that mythology that creative people are like some kind of other, you know, like some kind of, um, yeah. So I, I really like to hear that. So, okay. So before that, um, you weren't taking any like piano lessons or doing like choir or anything like that. Okay. No, my sister was taking piano lessons. Uh, I was not. And I would like occasionally try to sit and tinker at it, but not that often. I was usually just in the backyard with my soccer ball. Cool. Okay. So I have, I have two questions about your childhood. Um, one is like, what kind of stuff were you taking in, whether it's like music or just like philosophy or visual art or books, you know, whatever. Um, and then actually maybe just answer that first and then I'll ask the other one. <laughs> sure. Uh, so I watched a lot of Magic School Bus as a kid. A lot with Magic School Bus. Um, and was always so fascinated with the stories. And my, my mom is a nurse. So all of the kind of medical or scientific stories were really appealing to me, um, yeah. you know, because I was so fascinated by what my mom was doing. Yeah. And not really so much movies, um, but cartoons like that and some music. Um, I have two older sisters. One of them is 14 years older than me. Um, so when I was a little kid, she was in college and was doing all of the cool college kid things. So I was really interested in her music, which is like a lot of hip hop. Um, and yeah, so just kind of trying to be like my big sister um, <laughs> was one of my influences, trying to be like my uncle. Um, was one of my big influences. I thought he was just the, the coolest yeah. person. So I have a sister who's 13 years younger than me. So I'm, I'm on the other end of that. I'm the oldest. I'm sure she looks up to you a lot. I look up to her too, honestly. Like she's, she's almost 19 now. And, you know, I lived in a different state from her, like her entire life, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and so she moved to Utah um, this past fall to like start college. And, uh, I've been just like totally blown away by like how like advanced her mind is. <laughs> it's awesome. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. So I know that you like love thinking like current, current Alex like loves thinking. Is there anything that you like any, any like can you trace the roots of that like back to any interests in your childhood? That's a good question, man. Because I think like when I talk about creativity, like, you know, the longer that I do this podcast and like, I don't know if you know, but like I've been doing it a full year. I've done like about 60 of these interviews. Um, and the longer that I do this podcast, the more that I more that I kind of realized that the thing I'm, I'm actually interested in is just like how, how and why we are creative and curious. And I'm interested in it because I think that a lot of the problems that we have in our society 
maybe couldn't be solved with those things, but it, it's a big piece, like just creative thinking, curiosity. That's like the reason why I'm interested in these subjects. Um, so as we're talking about creativity, like I'm so open to it, like not being a discussion about like your craft. Right. And so, yeah, is there anything you can think of in your childhood that was the beginning of like being curious, thinking creatively about people and problems, et cetera? Yes. Uh, so I, I already mentioned that my mom homeschooled us for a little bit. And a lot of those assignments were writing based. Cool. Um, so it was kind of her getting my sister and I to try to just be creative on the page. My sister was naturally better at this than I am. Um, but I can remember specific books from my childhood, like Sideways Stories from Wayside School was one of those books that I read and was just so just mystified by a school that could be set up in this way, an elevator that only goes in one direction. So yeah. once it gets to the top floor, it's unusable. Those types of things were so funny to me as a kid, but yeah. also really made me think, like, why would someone design something this way? Like, how do, what are people supposed to do? Um, and I also really liked taking things apart as a kid and seeing if I could put them back together. Was not always successful, which got me in trouble sometimes, but got good at it. I'm still really good at, like, I fix all of my own stuff, you know. The, like, the, like, mechanical intuition. Yeah, I was always taking apart, like, like a set player or some electronic thing and just looking at all the wires and trying to figure out where stuff went. Is it still going to work if I do it like this? Yeah. Or? I'm, like, very, very bad at that. <laughs> like, I was talking to my sister the other day because she, she was saying that um, she didn't want to start a new job because she felt like it would be hard for her to learn, like, a new system, a new register, you know, whatever. Um and I was just telling her, like, I have such poor mechanical skills, like, to this day, like, I struggle to, like, um, to change the length of, like, straps, you know, like, on a backpack or, like, <laughs> like, my dog's collar, like, I can't do it. Like, I do the thing that I think I'm supposed to do, and it gets, like, it goes in the opposite direction. <laughs> like, I am 32, and, like, I cannot figure out straps. <laughs> <laughs> that's really like that's a gift like when I see people who have like strong mechanical intuition I like I'm the person who's like impressed by that <laughs> yeah I was always I think taking something apart and then as I got older it was like oh well how can I make this computer better yeah. oh if I just take this and yeah so that was did you like to read yes and no uh, so I'm trying to think about, you know, my past self. I read a lot now. I don't read a lot of fiction. I, mean, I, it's, yeah. But, you know, I used to read fiction, obviously. And it's not that I value nonfiction over it. It's just that's where I am with what I have to do, you know? So, but I never liked reading as much as my siblings or as my mom, but I did really enjoy it. I had a lot of books, yeah. you know, and I, I read a lot. I just was, again, typically just outside, you know, yeah. with some kind of ball or something. I want to ask, 
ask like, do you know, I'm also terrible at sports. So I can't ask any of these questions from any sort of like a personal insight, but I have to imagine that something like soccer can also use that kind of creative projection. Like, did you feel like that was like a, a strong root of that thinking? You know, I haven't thought about that, but it absolutely does. And as someone who still follows the game, dare I say, religiously, like it is, <laughs> it is all about creativity and, and tactics and trying to think so many steps ahead and yeah. like seeing pathways that aren't necessarily open, but that you know are going to open. Yeah. And yeah, so I did watch a lot of, oh man, there was this video that my dad got me when I was six or seven years old. And it was just about like, developing these soccer skills and it had these famous players from around the world and like their signature skills. Cool. And there was this Dutch player, Johan Cruyff, who used to do this dribbling move that was so distinct that it is now named after him. A Cruyff turn is like now named after him. And I spent so much time practicing like this particular turn and just yeah. So focused on the way they would move in space and yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I would also imagine that like really understanding the minds of your teammates is also like you're exercising that kind of like creative empathy of like what is Scott doing and whatever. And knowing them well enough to know, yeah, what their tendencies are, right? Like they almost always go in this direction when this thing happens. So knowing, yeah, knowing everyone well enough to um, like. Totally. Um, when, okay, I'm, I, only, I said I had two questions left about your childhood, but I have more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, were, were you curious about people in the sense that like, I don't know, like I feel like I was aware at a pretty young age that like other people's brains like, like, I know this sounds obvious, but like, I think I was aware at a young age that um, like other people had their own brains. <laughs> like, and I think some children aren't really intuitive about that. Um, oh. Did you feel like that? 100%. Yeah. Yes. Talk about that. Like just whatever, what do you remember? What do you think? I remember, okay. So when I was pretty young, maybe five, six around there, um, I lived in, in I lived in Virginia at that time, and I can remember, you know, the neighbors' kids just seeming different from me in some way. And of course, there's like the whole race thing and gender and all those other things we can talk about. But even past that, it's like I just had this feeling that they weren't looking at some object the way I was looking at the object, yeah. you know, or even with my sister. Like our brains, well, I have two, but the one who I more immediately grew up with is, you know, maybe two and a half years older than me. And just her brain works in a completely different way than me. And that became really obvious, yeah. you know, when I was a kid. Did that skill, I mean, like I would call it a skill or like, I don't know, did that, did that feel like interesting or valuable to you as a child? I think it did, but it also maybe felt a little alienating. Um, because you know, at that time you're trying to find what you have in common with people and find out how you get along with people and make friends and everything like that. So I think in, in some ways it felt a bit 
alienating to first start realizing that totally people don't see things the way that I see them. Of course, now I'm like, thank God, not everybody <laughs> sees things the way that I see them. But then it was pretty strange. I really relate to that. Like, you know, and, and I feel like for me and like the best, the best of my ability to remember my child mind, like, I think that was a big part of like my creative thinking as a young person of like, well, what might I have in common with this person? Or like, you know, I, like, how can I adjust, like, how I p- maybe play or how I talk in order to, like, kind of find a more common ground? Absolutely. Which I, which I think is, like, highly creative skill. Yeah. Um, okay, and then my, my last question. When you were little, like, this is such a, I don't know, I'm j- I just like, I know you now and I have like ideas about like what you're like now. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to like see if it's the kind of thing that was like always there or like if it has a beginning. Um, did you feel like, like, I, I, I guess I want to know when you were little, did you have like ideas about the kind of adult you wanted to be slash like, were you ambitious about the future or like, were you not thinking about it or something else? I had some ideas, but it wasn't so much that there was some like profession. I mean, I think every kid does the whole like astronaut or whatever. Um, (laughs) But it was more like there were just people who I really wanted to be like when I grew up. My big sister, I really wanted to be like her. And I am a lot like her, which is pretty funny. Um, <laughs> but at, yeah, at a very young age, I looked up to her so much, um, still do. And my uncle, Charles, who he is autistic um, and is a savant uh, when it comes to geography. Um, and I was so captivated by him as a young child. And just kind of being around him, I wanted to, like, know as much as he knew. You know, I wanted to be like that. Yeah, Um, I get that. Like, I think, I think I can, I think I had similar ideas as a child. Like, when you said there were people that I wanted to be like, I think I felt like that too. But it wasn't anybody that I really knew in person. It was, like, characters. You know, like, I would, I would see, because I grew up Mormon, and I didn't see a lot of like strong women around me, or at least not strong in like, maybe they were strong in like quiet, kind of quiet ways or like, you know, had like an inner strength, but like kind of go get them like women. I didn't really see that in my life. So like, I remember, I remember just watching like You've Got Mail and being like really into Meg Ryan's character because she like owned this business. Mm-hmm. but also was like nice. Like, I don't know. I, I remember being like thinking about women mostly that were characters. Yeah. And, and I also can relate to like seeing someone who is just an expert in something and feeling kind of like entranced by that. Yeah. I definitely wanted to be like all those soccer players, you know, that was what I thought I was going to be when I grew oh. up. You know. Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, so when you first started playing trombone or when you first had the trombone at your face, you were in you were doing like a like a junior police training? 
It was, um, it was like, so the junior police band, it was like a nonprofit kind of thing that the, you know, police force in Denver ran. Yeah. Okay. And your, your mom wanted you to do it or you wanted to do it or both? My mom wanted me to do it. And you hated it. I sure did. Um, And I, you know, I didn't want to play that instrument either. And my mom wanted me to play the saxophone. Right. So she goes to sign me up for this band and it's like trying to get me on saxophone. And I'm like, well, we have too many, but you know what we have basically none of is this trombone. And I'm like, of course you have none of it because this thing looks completely stupid. And of course no one wants to play it. Yeah. Um, so yeah Um, so what what happened like okay so I I like to take this podcast like more or less along like a a, like I want to think about creativity and and art and you know curiosity but then also I I like at least to talk a little bit like in line with human development like what's going on in your child mind and then I think like maybe what's going on between the ages of like 11 and 13 ish and then like later teens and then like, you know, beyond that. Um, so what, what was going on with you? Like in terms of your creative evolution or, or whatever you think is interesting in that kind of like preteen, like early teen stuff. I think I definitely was getting more into just more kinds of music that I was listening to around that time. Um, the neighborhood where we first lived when we moved to Denver was mm, on the rougher side. And my parents were like, we need to get you out of this. Yeah. So we moved, you know, away into an area that is honestly like not that much better these days, but it was better at that time. And the kids in my neighborhood were very into like skating um so i was trying to hang out and was listening to punk and like all this stuff that i was so unfamiliar with at the time but i was just like well these kids seem cool um (laughs) and you had been mostly listening to like hip-hop before i'd been mostly listening to hip-hop especially when my sister was around or in the house it was a lot of motown a lot of gospel um my dad listened to a lot of funk, cool. uh, so it was a lot of a lot of that in the house. It was like when I was by myself in my room, would be the hip hop, or then later on more of the the punk cassettes or whatever I was getting from. You from got the kids. punk with the skater kids. Um, yes. Okay. So you were more. You were just becoming more interested in music, like as a consumer. Yes. Okay. Not not as a creator really yeah. at all. <laughs> Okay, cool. Or like a participator. Um, Okay. And then was anything else going on creatively? Like, I don't know, writing? Um, Those, those particular years of my life are so strange to kind of reflect back upon because there wasn't that much going on for me. Creativity, Uh, creatively, it was, I can remember, going to church a lot and not really enjoying it Um, (laughs) and trying to just like find friends. I had a friend who was super into anime and I like didn't really understand it, 
but every time I was hanging out with him, he wanted to watch it. So like we were doing that. Um, I was getting exposed to a lot of things that I didn't necessarily have a really deep connection with. Yeah. Um, But I was seeing a lot of different things, hearing a lot of different things. Honestly, I think even that is like, can be, can be so powerful. Like, you know, I never had an experience like that until I was at North Texas because I just, I grew up in such a, like a homogenous kind of an area. Um, and I remember like, just, you know, meeting people who liked, who were like really, really into things that I had just like never even heard of. And like, just that in and of itself is kind of like, oh, like there is this variety that I just like had never even I don't know. I think even that can kind of like break your mind into like a, a wider realization of like what's even possible. Yeah. I definitely did have a really diverse surrounding in those years. Um, like a really, really racially diverse neighborhood. I was getting exposed to all kinds of, I can't believe I haven't talked about food yet. Um, so I, I was definitely getting exposed to all kinds of food at that time, too. Uh, Denver has, you know, so many enclaves. And I can remember tasting Greek food for the first time, Ethiopian food for the first time. Like, all these things because of, like, the kids in my neighborhood when you go to their house for dinner. um, It's just like, I don't know what this is, but I really love it. And, you know, I grew up, you know, eating really well. My mom an amazing cook I grew up in the like in the kitchen with her helping all the time and kind of cooking and it's so funny that I haven't thought about cooking as being one of the creative things for me in my childhood because that might be one of the primary ones totally well when I I mean like I said I've I've done like 60 of these interviews I can't tell you how common it is for people to do like exactly what you just did and go like oh I wrote poetry all the time (laughs) like it's weird (laughs) Um, which is kind of why I like to spend a lot of time on it because I feel like it sometimes takes a minute for people to be like, you know, I had this thing. Um, that's interesting. You said that too, because I I was interviewing, um, Colin Hinton last week. I don't, I don't, was he ever at school at the same time as you? No, but I know him. Yeah. And I mentioned to him that like one of my, like, you know, I'm always chasing that, that particular high of like, a brand new thing. Um, I'm so curious that it happens more and more rarely as I get older. Sure. Come in contact with a brand new idea or something. But I specifically remember like the first time I ate Indian food and I was an adult. I was like 20. I was like 20. Um, and I remember just being like, what? What is this? And like, then I have the second thought of like, what else have I not had? <laughs> Yeah. Which is Yeah, there is so huge. much out there in the world. That is something that I like hand to yeah. God did not know until I was like until I was an, an adult. Um so that's cool that you were kind of getting exposed to that in your in your early teens. Yeah. Um okay, so tell me the story of how you started getting into playing music. Um it was almost out of spite or necessity I don't know so when we moved from Denver it was like right at the beginning of high school for me and I was very bitter and did not want to be in Texas um 
but you know, my dad's job and like moved us there. Um, so I was trying to fill out the schedule and everything and I was planning to play soccer still and had done tryouts and had done well at tryouts and everything. Um, and then got pretty badly injured and mm. needed surgery. Um, so I had my first knee surgery when I was 14. Wait, did you tear your ACL? Uh, that was the ACL, MCL, and meniscus. I had that exact same injury when I was 17. I was dancing. Mm. But ACL, actually, I forget if mine was MCL and meniscus or PCL and meniscus. But anyway, all this to say. I feel that. I feel it. Yeah. It was all of that. And they discovered like a crack in the patella. It was just like a huge mess. No. Um, 14. Okay. Oh, that's so awful. And like dream crushing. Like you just moved. That's, that's trauma. Yeah. And it meant, you know, the end of soccer at that time for me too, which was pretty devastating. Um, But I had, signed up for band initially because I was like, okay, well, you know, I've played trombone before. Um, and there are some kids in my neighborhood who I liked who were in band. Cool. I was like, well, that'd be cool. You know, get to hang out with them. And I didn't know anybody, you know, we had just moved. Yeah. Um, so it soon became like my only thing to do. <laughs> I couldn't do the other things I wanted to do. So I kind of stuck with it and started getting better. And, you know, made some really, I met my best friend that way because, you know, I was sitting next to him and one of the bands. um, And I just started practicing first because, yeah, I had nothing else, but I really started to think, you know, like, I might as well be good at this if yeah. I'm going to do it. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Like the beginning of it is just like, I might as well be good at this. Like that's, I mean, I find it so fascinating. Do you ever teach children or do you mostly just, you do? Yeah. I, I, I so like, I'm so puzzled sometimes by like, I don't know, like what does or doesn't motivate each individual child it's so weird. Um, and that's so interesting that like for you, it was just like, well, I might as, I mean, is there more to it or like, is that really, that's kind of how you felt? That's really how I felt. It was so, I just was not excited about it. Yeah. It, I wasn't really excited about trombone until probably sophomore year, like into sophomore year. So right before I was turning 16 or so. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you feel like this, this thing of like, I might as well be good at it. Is that like consistent for you? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, if I'm gonna spend the time, like I might as well see how far I can push this. Otherwise, why am I spending the time? I think I feel like that too. Like I kind of don't want to do something unless I'm going to do it well. And and for me, like genuinely, it's not it's not like an ego kind of thing. It's just like, I feel like, I feel like maybe I think that the most interesting things about a thing are going to be the things that you don't get until you're better at it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so there's kind of a motivation. Like if I'm going to spend any time on this, 
I might as well spend enough time that like I can really get into the meat of it. Yeah, I want to know something if I'm gonna be spending my time doing it. And that absolutely applies to so many things in my life. Yeah. You know, where it's like, well, I'm gonna be investing this energy. So like I want return. <laughs> totally, totally, totally. Um, okay, so can you tell me about like if and when you started like lo- like loving it and like really enjoying it? Yeah, it was kind of moving towards the back half of high school. Um, you know, I went through a ton of band directors. So I went to a really, really big high school in Texas. Um, so much so that there were four freshman bands and then four upperclassmen bands. Oh. Um, so by the time I was in, you know, the top upperclassmen band, which was yeah, sophomore year, I guess, from there on, when I started playing music that seemed more compelling or that required skills that I didn't necessarily already have, it started to get really interesting to me. And I was like, I can't do this thing that the page is asking me to do. So like, how am I going to get around this or how am I going to learn like this skill to do this thing? Um, so it started I, getting... Sorry, go ahead. It started getting more interesting to me then and then senior year I started I had been working at a job like a fast food job because I wanted to be able to pay for lessons because I had never had lessons before and so it was definitely senior year when I'm taking private lessons for the first time and learning these skills that like my peers have kind of had already so I'm Mm -hmm. trying to catch up to them but I'm also just like I want to be able to play this repertoire like the way that it's supposed to be played so um what was it that we were saying a minute ago that like happened when you were 16 like almost 16 you you got more into music then I got more into playing then yes like it wasn't like an emotional thing but it was like you just started excelling maybe that helped you know that that I could kind of tell I was getting better allowed me, which is kind of backwards, but it allowed me to have more emotional investment in it because it was like, oh, I guess this wasn't a waste of time. Yeah. Uh, so. This is like maybe a little bit of a leading question, but I, I want to talk about it for just like educational purposes. Um, I think a lot of people make the assumption that like kids or people will be more inclined to have longevity in a thing if they're like good at it or they'll be more inclined to practice if they're good at it. And it sounds like you were, like you have this longevity, even just, you know, like I would say that like playing from 14 to 18 is a lot more longevity than I see in plenty of my students. Like that's only four years, but it's like Mm -hmm. that's investment for a teenager. if you weren't like loving it and you also weren't like instantly really good at it, can you describe like what was motivating you to keep doing it? Yeah. The social aspect was important for me. Um, You know, I had by then made some really good friends in the group. So like the majority of my social time is either with them in band or hang out with them outside of band. Uh, so that was kind of a big motivator for me 
to keep doing it because again it was like I'm not from Texas and it was like let me hold on to these <laughs> few friends I have at first you know well, um, is it right that like if you weren't taking private lessons were you having to practice at home like at all some yes um I not as much as I was you know later on but I was practicing at home some also, I was spending a lot of time just kind of hanging out in the band hall, like practicing during lunch or like after school or that kind of thing. And it wasn't so much that I was like, I want to, you know, be the best player in the world. It was that I would get so frustrated if there were things in the music that I couldn't do. Yeah. So I just needed to make sure I could do them. <laughs> so I like to talk with people about. Like, again, I, th I think pe people in general have misconceptions about artists and what kind of people artists are. And I find it so fascinating how much variety there is in, like, the, you know, your personality makeup that, like, lets you do whatever it is that you're doing. There's so much variety in it. Um, do you, like, I don't know, want to, like, pontificate at all on, like, like what those things are in your personality that just like, like allowed you to kind of keep doing this thing. Yes. I'm very stubborn. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> it's, I, I wasn't going to let some ink on a piece of paper defeat me, you know? And that was really one of the main motivators for me. It was that I am stubborn. I'm yeah. like, no, I'm not going to, like, I'm not going to get called out by the band director for not being able to do this thing. I'm not going to have the people in my section think that I don't belong there. I, like, I just needed to overcome, like, those hurdles. Yeah. So would you would you say that, like, it it's just kind of happenstance that it was music and art? I would say that. I would completely say that. And I know that that... Again, you're talking about like how artists are formed and everything. And it seems almost sacrilegious for me to say that like, it's complete happenstance that it was music. It could have been anything. It really could have been. And that's not for me to, obviously I love music and it is the main part of my life now, but could have been anything. <laughs> it just happened to be music. I I love hearing you say that, but I, I know what you mean though. And I think, I think like part of the, part of, part of the way that this mythology happens is we as artists kind of um, assume a shared vocabulary sometimes. Um, but no, like I, I, I so love hearing like, you know, people who will tell me things like I was, I was not that creative as a child, but I really liked math. And I, when I first started liking music, it felt like math. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know. I, I love it. And I love this idea that like the, the makeup of your personality that like kind of propelled you to keep doing music just really had nothing at all to do with music. No, not at all. And it's, you know, I grew up in a house that there was music playing often, but my, apart from my sister playing piano as a, as a kid, like my family doesn't have musicians in it. Like my parents sang in choir, you know, my sister, my oldest sister played clarinet for like a year and then quit in high school or something. 
Um, yeah. yeah, so it's not like there was any intense pressure from my family or family's background to become, you know, this professional musician or anything. It was just... Or even just like, it's a passion and like you love it. And like, it's, it just, okay. Um, in your, like up until you're like 16, 17, 18, were there other like maybe art related? And, and I just mean, I mean art really just in like the way of kind of thinking about it um, that you were like, here's my question. Were you being like moved by other things? I was being more and more moved by politics, actually, at that time. Um, That was right around when W was elected for the first time. And I remember being very moved by political movements um, Mm -hmm. that were happening around me and listening to more punk rock. And like, it was so overtly political. And I can remember being, you know, kind of radicalized at a young age by some of the bands I was listening to. And I can remember speaking with friends who were listening to those same bands about the things. And even if we didn't completely understand what was being said, um, I can just remember hearing about aspects of American history that weren't in my books Um, And that was happening in hip hop too, like hearing these stories that I wasn't seeing reflected in what I was learning at school. Yeah. Um, What was the like racial makeup of your high school? uh, Primarily white. Um, There were, I'm not going to say a lot of black people. There were some black people and decent amount of like Asian American people, um, some people from South America, some Mexican-American people, um, but still still primarily white. And you start feeling like a, a kind of a dramatic, like lack of variety in the stories that you were like learning at school. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and even being in band, you know, complete, band was not diverse yeah. um, at it all. Kids. It was white kids. Yeah. Um, I, I want to ask, like, I don't know exactly, like, what to ask, but I'd love to hear you talk about, like, how your, like, identity was forming around these things. Like, like I, I'm, 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 I'm having the idea that, like, this is the stuff that's important and, like, music it is just a compartment for it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so even though like you're you're a professional musician and I met you in music school, um, I I want I I I'd rather just like talk more about like the stuff that like matters to you. Um, so yeah, like what I mean, what would you like to kind of tell about like how your identity was forming like in relation to like these things that you did feel kind of passionate about? Yeah. Um... To kind of circle back to we were talking about when we were very young and you start noticing that people's brains might be different than yours. Some of my first encounters with the fact that even if, like, no matter how I felt that the world saw me differently were 
around age five, six or so growing up in Virginia, um, especially growing up in Richmond, Virginia, like the old capital of the Confederate States of America, um, where we had to exit off of like Jefferson Davis Highway to get to our house. And I remember asking like, who's that? And just my dad um, has degrees in history and was like was super into like early American history and everything. So I can remember a lot of conversations with him about how people might treat me even though it was unfair and like what some of these symbols meant in the places where I live, why our neighbor down the street had that flag outside their house. Um, I can remember that same neighbor like pointing a gun at me like five years old. It was this whole thing. And so like I had these encounters, you know, when I was younger that kind of started making me question why it was okay for people to treat other people a certain way based on, you know, any kind of difference. For me at the time, it was like, you know, how I looked. Um, but that's always been a part of my identity, sadly. It's just how things are. Um, you mean, sorry, but, just to clarify, you mean the thing that's always been part of your identity is just being aware that people see you differently. Is that, yeah. Yes. Um, really, really quick. Uh, I'm worried that your mic is like peaking. Um, let's see. I can move it a little further. Yeah, or maybe turn the gain down a little bit or something. Yeah, and I can yeah, also I make sure that the sound is like we can hear your beautiful voice talking about your thoughts. <laughs> um, yeah, sorry. I hate like trying to. I hate like breaking the thing, but I just I'm I'm. Worried. Oh no, it's fine. Um. Uh, okay. Yeah. So that, that makes, I mean, I'm sorry about it. And that, that makes perfect sense that that was something like, especially, and maybe I'd like to just get your, your perspective on whether, um, like, I would imagine that your dad being a history teacher and like having, you know, extra knowledge and extra, like, you know, particular like literacy about American history gave you as a, as a child, like some extra tools to understand these things that maybe some children don't have. Sure. So he, I mean, he wasn't a history teacher, but oh. he, oh. he just has, he has a couple of degrees in it. Yeah. Um, and would still consider himself like a history, he calls himself a history buff you know, um, but, and he's from that part of the world. He is from North Carolina. Um, and it definitely gave me a lot of exposure to particular things as a kid. Yeah. Even if, you know, when I was really young and I didn't necessarily want to go to the civil war battlefield, cause I'm like, this seems like the worst field trip ever. Yeah. Um, reflecting back on those things now, I'm like wow, he was he was showing me some stuff. Yeah. I <laughs> yeah. really I mean I you know, I've talked pretty openly about like my parents and like how much they weren't doing anything like that. Um and uh whenever I hear stories of parents like kind of shepherding their kids like through the world in this kind of thoughtful way, I really admire it. Um I think it's really important. So, um, so yeah, your, your dad was teaching you and then you were also, were seeing it in your life. 
Um, and I also like how you talked about like that, like punk music was also like giving you an example of how, like maybe giving you yet another example of how these kinds of ideas can be embodied in art. Yes. Um, and kind of showing me that there were just all of these untold stories, not all untold, but just unheard stories. I'm obsessed with this type of concept as well. Like, you know, I, I, I'm, um, I was thinking this morning about interviewing you and I want, I wanted to acknowledge at some point in the interview that like, you know, at the time that you met me, like I've, I've always been a curious person, but like I said, I just was exposed to so, so little. Um, and like, you were the first person that like talked to me about white privilege, um, which uh, I always remember that. And like, I'll always think about you like, you know, and I'm so grateful that you like were patient with me. Um, and, uh, and also like, I fully am aware that like, it's not um, your job to like think <laughs> about that stuff. Like that's something that I understand now. Um, and, and because of that, I'm, I'm like exceptionally grateful that like you, you helped me get started on those things. Um, but for me, like, you know, I grew up with my, you know, narcissistic parents and I was kind of like the scapegoated child in the family. And I think that's my story of like how I became aware that there are like perspectives that don't get heard. Um, mm -hmm. and so I was curious about that kind of a subject even though like I wasn't aware that it was happening like in these gendered ways and happening in racial ways and happening in like gender identity kinds of ways and um, uh, orientation ways, et cetera, et cetera, all the things. Um, but I'm, I'm fascinated by these stories, the, the untold, unheard stories as well, um, which is yet another reason why I like, you know, I feel like I can't create a platform to hear all the stories, but like I can let artists tell <laughs> their stories, you know? Right. Um, is there anything else you want to say about um, your, like those kind of later teen years and like how you were starting to kind of like, I don't know, maybe synthesize some of these like interests and like, you know, passions um, into like action or like into plan or even just into like your own kind of decision-making? Sure. Um, I remember when I was, I want to say 16 or 17, there was this album that I heard for the first time. It's this punk band from Canada uh, called Propagandi. They had this album called Today's Empires, Tomorrow's Ashes. And the album cover, it's like kind of this almost tattered-ish, like American flag kind of in the background. And just, it just, there's a lot of mystique around this album cover. Um, and they're obviously referring to like the US, the whole like Today's Empires, Tomorrow's Ashes. And I remember listening to this album and wondering why they knew more about my country than I did. Mm. Um, I was like, these guys aren't even from here. How do they know all of these deeply 
American stories so well? How have I not heard any of these stories? And they're all true stories. Like they aren't making anything up on the album. And it was around then that I went to my first protest. (laughs) Um, And that started to become a really big part of my life. It was like going to these demonstrations, like these anti-war demonstrations and downtown Dallas. Yeah, I would have been 17 because I remember the war in Iraq starting in March 2002. Um, So yeah, 16, about to turn 17. Yeah. Did you have like, were you, like, how did you feel about like, how your peers and or adults in your life like were seeing that? It was tough because my parents are both ex-military. Like I grew up in an army family. Um, So in some ways I felt like I was pushing against the family trade as like weird as that sounds. No, I get it. I get you know, it. I, I don't think that like my family is responsible for the military industrial complex, but like, you know, my parents were both in the army and yeah. there was a time in, in my life where like people wondered if I was also going to join the army and everything. Yeah. And I, that was a vehement no for me. I had zero interest. Yeah. Um, and part of that was the influence of like this, friends of mine who were into punk and everything, but it was also that, that music and just feeling like those messages made so much sense to me and knowing my own experience of like knowing that it's not right for people to treat you differently because you're different from them. Like wondering, you know, why, I guess just kind of wondering why I felt like our country was responsible for treating people in particular ways yeah, and feeling like I needed to, at least in some way, try to help stop that. Totally. I I relate to that. I mean, I know it's not the same, but like, you know, my experience kind of like, like realizing things about my religious history and making like, you know, decisions that really were like divergent from my family. Like I I can relate to that um, Mm -hmm. in a different way. And I certainly was older. Like I never would have had, I mean, I think I wouldn't have had the wherewithal or like self-awareness to be making those kinds of like strong decisions at age 17. I mean, I think I was just like, I knew I was different from my family and I knew I was, I was a little different from my community at large. Um, but, uh, but I, I think I tried for a long time to like try to fit in, you know, <laughs> like I kept, I kept like my feeling that I was different, like pretty private mm. for like a longer time. But I do think that's part of the reason why I got into jazz. Cause I think I felt like, a, a more of a kinship with the kinds of people who like jazz. Sure. There was something about it that felt like home. Um, okay. 
will you tell me the story of how you decided to major in music? I still have no idea how this happened. <laughs> you know, it, it was, I guess, around junior year of high school, going into senior year, that I like thought that I just wanted to make an impact on the world by being a band director. You know, I was like, I... I had a lot of band directors in high school, I think 10 total. Um, and some of them were good, some of them were not. Um, but, you know, I knew that I wanted to do music. I had started to kind of feel that affect of, you know, what music can give to people. I was mainly feeling it from the music I was listening to and not from like band literature. But, you know, there, it wasn't like I could major in punk rock, or at least I didn't know how to make that work. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do the music thing. Like, yeah. this is what I'm going to do. And then, then I did some auditions. and. So it for, okay, so you were feeling moved by punk music. Um, and you were thinking that, like, you would find a way to connect that movement to teaching kids. Is that right? Yeah, it was punk and it was some hip hop too. And it was like, I could tell at least that there was something that I connected with in music and the way that music helped me see the world in a particular way that I thought I could transfer like, you know, to students. Do you, do you feel like you can like articulate what that was? Like what that, thing something was i mean the like fancy overused academic word i would use for it is affect which is like such an everything and a nothing word at the same time um can i just say i hate so much that like i can't use the word affect with like non-academic music people because it's such a useful word <laughs> but let's yeah. tell, let's tell people what it means <laughs> Do you want me to do it or do you want to do it? I mean, it can be broken down into so many ways, but when I'm saying affect now, I'm referring to these particular deep, visceral, emotional feelings that something can bring. Mm -hmm. And the thing about affect is it doesn't have to be a good or a bad feeling. it is just the feeling itself. It's like a feeling that compels you to act. It's a feeling that compels you to think. Um, it can be an everyday occurrence. It can be some big musical event. It's just a way that we try to wrap up in as nice of a bow as we can anyway. Yeah. Like all these overwhelming, seemingly unexplainable feelings that... yeah something like music can give you um i feel like i think i get it but um is there like is there anything else that you want to say about like why because like i get like that you're feeling these things from punk and hip-hop but like can you say something about why maybe instead of like just performing that music you're you're your 17, 18 year old thought was like to teach it? Yeah, because I saw the way that other people were connecting to the various musics that they were listening to and saw it as such a useful tool for transmitting ideas and thoughts. Um, 
Yeah. And and that seemed like, (laughs) it was like in a funny way of putting it, but it's easier to like, someone will take bad news easier if you're singing it to them. Yeah, totally. So you, so is it, is it right to say that like all along your motivation is these bigger ideas of like these stories that aren't told and like the ways that we don't understand each other or refuse to look at each other. Um, and your motivation in, in studying music was like, it was always about that. 100%. And that's still true. That's, I'm so glad. Um, Okay, so you you did you didn't care that much about where you were going to school. You just you wanted to teach band. You did some auditions. I yeah, and I ended up. Um, I know I, at that point I was like, well, I'll do music education because then that'll like put me in the classroom. And I went to Texas Tech for my undergrad. Chad, an absurdly strong trombone studio. Um, who, so who, good. Texas Tech. Oh, like one of the one of the best. Like we won the international Tremone choir competition a couple times while I was in school. There were people from the studio winning symphony jobs in like this climate. It, it was, it was, it was an amazing studio. And that was um, moving in and of itself. It was being around musicians of that caliber was really incredible. Yeah. Um, awesome. So yeah, I, I thought I was going to go to university of Colorado cause I was like, I want to move back. And I had gotten accepted there and everything. And I did the Texas Tech audition kind of last minute because I was playing in like an all-region band. um, And our director for that all-region band was like one of the head directors at Texas Tech and was talking to me about school. And he's like, well, you ought to consider auditioning here. Lubbock, no. Exactly. And I was like, well... I guess I'll like see what this is like. And one of my friends from high school was out there and he was like, yeah, fly out. Like you can just stay at my dorm. I'll show you around and everything. Uh, So I went out there and when I met that teacher, Don Lucas, he's actually in Boston now. So like not far from me, but when I met him and did the audition, I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. (laughs) Like instantly I knew that was where I was going to go. That's awesome. I felt like that about North Texas. I like, I, I stepped in the building for my audition and I was like, I gotta be here. Um, okay, so what did you end up majoring in for your bachelor's degree? So I started off as music education and then I switched to music performance halfway through, which I had to stay, you know, another year. Um, Why? To- Why did you do it? Once I started taking some of the ed classes and getting deeper into that and doing some like classroom observation, I had the realization that it was not what I wanted to do. It was like, I don't want to be a Texas band director. This is not, this is not the life that I am meant to have. Yeah. Like was, you know, I I can sort of imagine like the, the motivations that you had for teaching like they're, they're, it would be really hard to make room for them in like Texas band. Yes. Yeah. And it's also, I guess that's when I started to become a lot more concerned with what music does versus like what music is. Um, 
which, I mean, I suppose that's maybe an argument to stay with music ed because I'm interested in what music does for people versus like the maybe more theory or like, let's break down what this is and how it works, which is like a reversal of how I was as a kid, right? Um, but I just saw that the Texas band director life was not what I needed to be doing. And I also started to get way better in college and was like, you know, maybe I can just have this as my career, just playing music. Cause I like really truly did start to love performing at that time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I get what you're, I get what you're saying. And I, I think it's important. So I just want to talk about it like a second longer, like, you know, this, what music is versus what music does man, it's such a, it's such a dance. Like, I feel like in, if I, if I look back, like with that particular lens over my like musical evolution, it, it flip-flops. Like there have been times when I'm so interested in what music is and times when I'm like, I could not care less about that. Yeah. I definitely go back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. it's, It's interesting. There's like the craft and that's like, that's interesting and valuable and like, you know, can get you lit up. And then like, sometimes like, yeah, I, I go through that as a teacher too. I, at most of my career, I've only been teaching private lessons. Um, and I find myself like as a teacher, I think because I don't have a curriculum that I'm like beholden to, which I'm, I'm guessing is partly what you were realizing was going to be a problem, <laughs> but like a, like because I don't have a curriculum that I'm beholden to, I can I can sort of I can just teach like whatever I'm interested in, <laughs> right. and like I don't even I don't mean to always, but like I know there will be like entire years where like I'm so into like you know talking with my students about like chord structures and harmonic rhythm and like you know um, melody forms and like you know or like rhyme schemes, you know, and I'm I'm really into like these small things and then some like whole years where like all we're talking about is like what's the story you want to tell right and then there are those there are those moments where both of those things happen at the same time or where the what it does or the affect of it becomes so overwhelming because you understand the is or the construction of it that happens to me all the time with hip-hop that happens to me all of the time Totally. Like understanding something about the technicality and the intentions that the musicians had in creating it that way and structuring it that way can make the storytelling like way more powerful than it ever could have been on the surface. Right. Hardcore, amen, on that. (laughs) Um, Okay, cool. Um, So is there anything else that you want to tell me about like what your undergraduate degree did for like the creative you are now. Yeah, I definitely got exposed to, you know, a lot of, a lot more music in undergrad. I was not very into, you know, classical music or anything when I started that. And then I ended up, you know, essentially getting a degree in it in my undergraduate. And I also, if you have noticed, like have not mentioned jazz to this point, and that's because jazz was not really a part of my life um, until very late in my undergrad. And that was when uh, Brad Lely was at Texas Tech. 
as a professor. Um, And that was the first time I had ever taken a lesson on how to improvise or any of that. But it, it wasn't really until then, and then I was around more musicians who were excelling at it, that I started to get deeply interested in it. Did you, um, this is maybe just like a really technical question, but like, did you have to go out of your way to get lessons from Brad? Not at that time. And also like Texas Tech does not have a massive jazz program, right? So he was there teaching the top jazz ensemble, teaching um, some improv lessons and all of that. But I was one of the, yeah, it wasn't hard for me to get, I was just wondering if you had to like advocate to like take lessons like outside of the trombone studio for, for the listener, Brad plays the saxophone. Um, (laughs) Alex and I both know. uh, (laughs) Right. Forgot about that. Yes, Uh, yes, I'm wondering if, but, but it wasn't like that. It was like they were improv lessons. Yes. It was, it was an improv lesson. I just, if, if you did have to like have the creative thought to like advocate for that, I wanted to, say wanted to capture it Um, (laughs) okay so you so that was really impactful like what happened like how did it light up your brain oh man I had no idea what was going on um (laughs) at all it was because jazz itself it's not like jazz was completely brand new to me but playing it at that level in that way totally brand new um so I can remember some lessons with him, him being like very upset with me for not understanding or getting some particular thing or like not having like this particular book with me or something like that. I just, I was not ready to be studying with him. You know, I was just not ready. Um, I'm glad that he, you know, had the patience to try to work with me on that, but it showed me that there was just a lot. I feel like a lot of my biggest lessons in life have been the realization that there is so much to learn. Um, yeah. And it was definitely a motivator in that way, just kind of seeing how much there was. That's your pattern, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> so, so you're introduced to jazz as like a junior in college. Yeah. And then you get a little obsessed with it. A lot obsessed. You get a lot obsessed. Um, And then you decide to get a master's degree. Yeah, there was space in between though. Um, Tell me about it. Yeah, so after I finished my bachelor's degree, I wanted to get as far away from Texas as I possibly could. and I moved to the Bay Area in California. Um, that was 2008. Why, why did you pick the Bay Area? Uh, so I had had some experience out there. Like, are you familiar with Drum and Bugle Corps? No. Okay, so the fastest, the quick and dirty way to explain it, it's like take marching band and ratchet it up to like a prof- an unnecessarily professional level. Okay. So like... The difference maybe between Little League Baseball and Major League Baseball. 
Um, it's kind of like that. Um, so there are these various groups around the U.S. They're all nonprofit organizations, not affiliated with schools or anything. And people from all over the world audition for these groups. And you make one of them, and then you spend your entire summer touring the U.S. competing against the other groups. Um, then, like, the championship is like the first or second week in August, and then you hug everybody, and then you go back to whatever your life was before okay. the summer. Um, so so I was, okay, go ahead. I was performing, I, I got exposed to that, I guess, um, in high school. Some of my band directors had performed in it when they were younger and there's an age cap. If you're older than 22, you can't, um, perform, but I was competing as a member of a group that was from the Bay area. Um, when I was 21 and 22, I was in that group. Um, so I fell in love with the Bay Area because I had I was out there a lot um, for that. So then after I graduated, I, I knew people there already. I knew I liked the area already. So, um, what'd you do there? Everything, because even in two thousand eight, it was really unaffordable. Yeah. Um, now it is. I don't know how people live there. But even then, it was really unaffordable. So I was teaching a high school marching band. I was teaching the jazz bands at two different high schools. I was teaching some lessons at a community college from like Euphonium and Trombone. Um, I was a bar back. I was playing every gig I could find from like this band that played New Orleans style funerals to like this band that played in a burlesque house in San Francisco. I was just trying to survive. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, did you like it? You know, I kind of miss it sometimes. <laughs> I, I don't miss the extreme stress. I don't miss Cause it got really bad sometimes. Like I, I like financially motivated. It was like, what, am I pay my bills? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a struggle sometimes. I lived in my car for a couple of months. Um, I, you know, there were the, do I put gas in my car so I can get over here and teach or do I eat? Like there were definitely those moments. Yeah. It, it was, it was rough. Um, but that it's kind of interesting looking back on it and being like, wow, I'm still alive, <laughs> you know? And I think that was where I picked up the nasty habit of always working like seven jobs at once. Um, you know, it was complete necessity then. Now it's just a bad habit that I have. Um, <laughs> you you kind of like it? I do. I kind of like that. Not necessarily spread too thin, but like just stretched in a lot of different directions. Totally. Yeah. I get that. I sometimes I tell people like, if I have the amount of work that I like to have, there should be like probably five days in every month that I feel like overwhelmed and like I can't do it. Like yeah. that's that's about the right balance. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I totally no. like I have a little insomnia one night and then like I can't do I can't. It's like it's it's just enough that like if anything else happens, it's too much. <laughs> yeah, totally. 
I so I was have that much work right now, and that it is bumming me out. Yeah, same. <laughs> but I have, you know, that was a skill that was necessary for me out there, um, and you know, eventually I was able to move into a place, and it was really expensive, just like everything else out there. Um, and you know, I had roommates, um, but I was just doing the the hustle you know how did all of that like sit on your identity like did you feel like did you this is maybe this is kind of like a meh question but like did you feel like uh, like aligned between like who you are and what you were doing like it's, it's oversimplified but like something about that sure now in there were definitely moments in which I, you know, was really aware of some of the same, like, identity issues and things that I had been aware of and had been kind of fighting for my whole life. Um, there were definitely moments of that, but I also was so busy that it wasn't as big a part of my life as I like it to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it was, I mean, that was, you know, the year, I moved out there the year that, you know, Obama got elected for the first time, um, and kind of watching the shift in, like, national politics yeah. at that time from such an intensely blue state, it was, like, yeah. interesting for me, too. Do you, is there anything you want to say about it? Like what that was like? Yeah, it, I remember going to cast my ballot in that 2008 election and my polling place was like a lot of very white kind of like older people. Um, and I remember hearing them talk, you know, about like, how they weren't going to vote for Obama and like all this stuff. And I remember like just, I remember being there and thinking like, there's this idea that California is this extremely liberal place. And I guess when it comes to like the electoral college, it is. However, (laughs) there are so many intense pockets that are just like the places people like to imagine in medical middle America yeah. You know, that's it's everywhere. Um, yeah. So I can remember kind of being floored to be out there and to hear things that I thought I'd left behind in Texas or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, like it wasn't so much that they were saying it. I mean, that's enough, but like that they were in San Francisco saying it. Yeah, to be, yeah, to be in the Bay and still... Yeah. That was one of those reality check moments for me. Like, oh, like it <laughs> it doesn't matter where I am. Yeah, like like it's there's it's not better. It's not fixed even anywhere. No, yeah. That's really depressing. Um, but what motivating for you? Or just- it was. Yeah, okay. yeah. And I definitely, you know, tried as much as I can to have an impact on the students I was working with. Um I still um I became really close family friends with yeah, the family of one of my private students out there. 
he started off um, as a woodwind player and he wanted to switch to brass because he wanted to do drum corps. He wanted to do like, he wanted to be in the same group I had been in and everything. And I can remember pulling up to the school one time and I always drove with my windows down just listening to hip hop or whatever I was listening to. And I can remember um, pulling up and he was like walking past and he was like, what were you listening to? And I popped the CD out and I gave it to him. I was like, oh, here, you can have this, um, which he still talks about. <laughs> but I, you know, was able to, I think, impact a lot of students because of the various jobs I had and the places that I was. And it was like, even, yeah. And even though I hadn't done music ed, you know, I was still teaching all the time. Um, Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So how did you decide to go back to Texas? What happened? So enter Brad Lely once again. Um, So (laughs) I get a call from Professor Lili at, it was a, it was about to be five o'clock in the morning for me. Oh. My phone's ringing and I see his name pop up. I'm like, what? So I answer, I'm very sleepy, like, hello? Blue! <laughs> like, uh, hi, Professor Lili, how's it going? And I will never forget, he says, a little birdie told me you were thinking about grad school you should come to North Texas. Now, I had not mentioned grad school to anyone. It was not really a thing I had been thinking about. But he called me seemingly out of the blue. And that was when he had had left Texas Tech. He was at UNT at this point. Um, And yeah, apparently a little birdie told him that I was thinking about grad school. Why did he like you? (laughs) I just, I felt a kinship with him for sure when we were at Texas Tech. Being black in Lubbock is an experience. Um, So we, you know, definitely connected over that. But I don't know, just always got along. Yeah, but it wasn't because you like were in his, took lessons from him and like blew his mind. Oh, no. It was, it was because like he cared about you as a person. Like he liked what you were about. Yes. And, you know, I think that he saw some potential in, in me to, like, you know, be able to have some kind of an impact on the world and everything. It definitely was not because I blew him away in lessons. I mean, he knew me as a bass trombone player anyway. So yeah. he didn't really know me. I wasn't really a tenor playing. player. Yeah, you weren't, like, playing soloistically. Yeah, no. I was, like, I got my bachelor's on bass trombone. And I switched to tenor when I got to UNT. Um, wow. That's, I just, I mean, I think that's really valuable. Like that's valuable. I, I have to imagine that's valuable in your development to know that someone like Bradley Lee, like was interested in you for a totally non results driven, you know, like reason, like that's really affirming. Um, yeah. I have to also just, like give props to Bradley Lee for like being the kind of educator who can think beyond chops. Cause it's, it's rare. It's way more rare than it should be. Yeah. And I mean, 
you know, obviously like the chops got better and I'm sure that he saw that there was the potential for them to get better, but yeah, it is not as if he called me because I was some like burning improviser and he was like, you need to be here right now. He saw something else that was valuable that like as, as a, as a music culture and as a, as a people culture we need. That's awesome. Like that's really, that makes me feel like, that makes me feel like hopeful. Um, Okay, so did you have to think about it or were you like, okay, I'll go? Oh, I had to think about it because at that particular moment, I was like, there is no way that I'm going back to school because I kind of hated school. Yeah. Um, I was like, there's no way I'm going back to school. There's especially no way I'm going back to Texas. I am like, I just got out. <laughs> there's no way I'm going back. How long um, were you in San Francisco? How many years? Two. That's a perfect, that's a perfect amount of time to like get something and do something. So what, what ultimately like sealed the deal for you? You know, he put the bug in my ear and I, it was, I just kept thinking about it. <laughs> and he told you that a little birdie told him, but really he was the bird telling you. I'm pretty sure, like, I'm not sure how he would have got that information that did not exist in the world. It was a dream. Otherwise. Apparently. I've actually never asked him about that. Should. I would um, love to know the answer. Like, yeah. I mean, what, yeah, like, what, that's such a crazy story. Yeah. I'm, I'm unprecedented. I've never heard anything like that. And it was so, oh, it was so early in the morning. And I'm an early riser, but it was before I woke up. It was early. And um, if that had been me, I would have, like, I would have, like, woken up at, like, nine and been, like, I would have thought that it didn't happen. I would have been, like, that was a weird dream. Yeah, it was, yeah, I should ask him about that. Um, if you do, please tell me. Like, I would love to know. <laughs> well, um... <laughs> But yeah, it was like, it was just, he, he planted that idea and I thought about it more and more um, and was just thinking about, you know, for like my, my further motivations in life or like, how could I be a better teacher? Or how can I be more impactful? And that was kind of led me to it. Wow. Okay. What year did you get there? 2010. Okay, that so we started our master's degrees at the same in the same semester. Um, okay, what do you want to talk about of the master's degree? What's what's important? I want to make sure we have plenty of time to talk about like what you've done since then. So, sure. Uh, North Texas was an interesting place for me. Um, you know, I I did uh, jazz pedagogy um, because of the whole you know my inclination for teaching thing. Um, Can I ask? Sorry, I'm interrupting you just right away. Did you, how did you feel there about like being kind of open that you wanted to teach? And that was like your main. <laughs> it was really, you know, I felt supported by my peers and not always supported by the faculty. Yeah. You know, I always said that I wanted to teach too, like from the time I got there, is it? I did my bachelor's there too. And uh, I always said that I wanted to teach and I really felt like um, not that supported. Yeah, because the teachers are supposed to be on the other side 
right? They're supposed to be like on the legit side of the school, not in the jazz school, right? Like the music ed people. Um, Yeah, it was, you know, none of my peers ever had an issue with it at all. Um, You didn't feel like people were like, well, he's not really trying to play jazz. Yeah, no. Cool. No, it was it was just some of the faculty who treated who treated it like that. Um, oh. My favorite thing about being at North Texas was the peers. Yeah. Like that's where my playing actually got better. You know, because I would work on things for lessons, and I like you know I studied with Steve Weist, and I loved studying with Steve, and he definitely made me a better player. And like I have a range that I did not know I possessed. You know, coming from bass trombone to tenor, it was like, I can play high. Who knew? Yeah. Um, so I learned a lot from Steve. But it was like playing in the, like, that basically bassy band and, like, the Abbey Underground that developed my chops. It was living in a house with three amazing trumpet players that developed my chops. Who, who were you living with? Tyler Meir, Kevin Swaim, and Preston Haney. Whoa. <laughs> That's a great. Yeah. That's a great. Yeah. Group. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So two of those guys are in like pr- premier military jazz bands now. Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah. It's. Wow. Brass house. It was. It was quite a place to live, and it was really fun because we played a lot of gigs together. Yeah. Um, whether it was a big band thing, and Tyler started his big band while we were living there, so you know I'm on recordings with them, and just. Wow. Um, can you put some words on like what what was valuable from your peers, like what it did for you? It was with my peers that I saw that it was not only okay, but encouraged to explore parts of music that were not bebop. Yes. Um, because, I mean, for anybody listening who doesn't understand and that... They- they don't probably. Okay. So bebop is just a shorthand to talk about a particular era and style of jazz that came to be seen as like the baseline for how improvisation is supposed to be based. So, you know, like from the, I'd say early forties going into like the early sixties, it was just a particular language that is still the dominant language for jazz improvisation. Um, and that was the Bible at University of North Texas. It is, it is the Bible at University of North Texas. Sure is. <laughs> um, and there are like particular devices that you're expected to know and use, and you're supposed to copy licks from particular players. Like there's one test you have to take where you, you're required to use at least one lick by Charlie Parker. Um, it's, you know, and I love bebop. Yeah. And and I can play that way. I don't typically enjoy it. Yeah. You know? It's like, okay, this is a thing that I know how to do. Yeah. Um, and I will do it to pass these barriers. And then I will move on with my life. And yes, I know how to play that way. And I can play changes. Cool. Yeah. But I got a lot more out of hearing the type of music that my peers were creating, listening to the way that they were improvising, like 
just again getting into other people's thinking about how their brains are working like how this person plays over this chord change versus how this person does and realizing that neither of those vocabs are bebop based right. and they still sound good um yeah, so it was super powerful yeah getting to and you know playing other people's recitals i remember getting to play some with um brian casey on bass which was like yeah, what a nice very and like very fun i need to put his name on my list brian casey is amazing um and exposed me to things that i knew about but hadn't really listened to like frank zappa and stuff like that yeah. and just listening to the way that zappa's musicians improvised um and i remember i played on a bass forum with Brian and I went to take a solo and I just improvised the way that I wanted to. And I remember Lynn Seaton, the bass professor coming up to me afterwards, telling me like how much he loved the way that I played. And that was so affirming to me. I'm like, it is possible to do other things. Really? Sound good. You no, know, I feel like I'm like, I'm just learning that like in the last couple of years. Like seriously, just in the last maybe three or four years, I've really started like making creative choices just because like it's what I feel or what I think or what I'm interested in. And I don't know that I've had a ton of affirming experiences of people who I respect being like, good job. <laughs> but um, but I the thing that does blow my mind about it and continues to is like when my goal is to just, you know, improvise or compose or whatever things that I'm interested in, it just is better. <laughs> so much better. Yeah. <laughs> like whether anybody appreciates it, you know, like I suppose is beside the point, but like it, I, I think to myself all the time now, like imagine if I would have done this earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't been no, back to Denton. Yeah. And I haven't been back to Denton in um, a few years, probably, maybe a couple of years. But the last few times I've been back and have played, like people always comment, I'm like, wow, you're like sounding so much better. I'm like, you know, it's the more distance I get between me and that place, which. I don't want to talk about North Texas like it's some horrible place because it's amazing and it's produced countless amazing musicians. But I just know that for what I needed, there was something that was kind of inherently limiting about the way that I was forced to study. Yeah. So it was really the freedom I was finding in my peers and the music they were making. Yeah. And now that I've kind of, yeah, moved past it, I am coming into the way that I really like to play. I still agree. And like, I, I'll echo all of that. And, you know, I, 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 I fully agree that like my intention is never to say anything negative about my alma mater because there was so much valuable to me there. And it was for me, like for me, it was the first time in my life that I felt like, I mean, I don't even know that I really felt like I belonged, but I felt so much more belonging. Right. Um, but I do think for like, for the, for the sake of a conversation about creativity, I'll never stop saying that like, we need as much creativity and teaching as we need, like, you know, 
um, as creatives. Um, and, and also just the creativity in our minds to imagine how a student or a human or, you know, a student or just a person could thrive and like light up if you just change these few parameters. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's worth acknowledging. It's worth acknowledging that, um, that you really blossomed in like a slightly different environment. Yeah. It's fine to say it and it's important to say it. Yeah. But it was also, I mean, if we're going to be transitioning to what I do now, I have to mention UNT because I would not be doing what I do now without UNT. Um, because it was at UNT that I, you know, met and worked with John Murphy. Um, and, you know, he was my grad advisor. And my first encounter with John Murphy was when I was doing entrance exams at UNT and asked if I could test out of jazz history. Um, which seems like a particularly cocky thing to ask um, from just like some guy, you know, but I was like, I just feel like I'm not really going to need to take this class. Like, can I test out of it? And he's like, yeah, okay, well come by my office and like, we're going to do this test and we'll see. Yeah. Um, so I was like taking a written exam and then there was a drop the needle test, so, you know, playing random tracks and I've got to list the track title and the artist and the year and the label. Um, and I, I did really well, (laughs) I did really well. And he was like, okay, well, I guess you (laughs) don't have to take (laughs) those courses. And I ended up TAing like his, his jazz history course and got to teach it some and all that, which was really great. That John Murphy's John, uh, jazz history course was one of my favorite classes that he took there. He is such an amazing educator and and person and it was you know I was taking his research courses and all of that and he kind of pulled me aside one day and was like you know we should schedule a time to meet and and talk in my office and he said that he noticed in my papers that he said I it seemed like I was just really interested in doing research that I had a love for it yeah. And I was like, yeah, I mean, I, I do. And he was like, you should consider ethnomusicology. And I mean, his PhD is in ethnomusicology from yeah. Columbia. Um, just, I didn't. Should we just like tell the listener what ethnomusicology is? <laughs> sure. It is. It, the definition changes depending on who you ask. But I will say it is the study of music and culture. Um, So I'm interested in why people make music and how they do it, like what they use it for. Maybe the listener could kind of understand it as like music anthropology. Yeah, it started started from anthropology. Um, It was anthropologists who were primarily interested in the music and the cultures that they were studying and it became its its own field in the 50s, 1950s, but. um, Did we, were, is that like, you know, I was trying to remember like where I actually like had like time with you when we were in school. Cause like, I I really, I can't recall like any specific classes, but did we take ethnomusicology at the same time? We might have. 
Um, Dr. What's his name with the F? Friedson. Yeah. And what was, you remember um, Arthi Govan? Do you remember her? Absolutely. I mean, you, you and Arthi are the people that like, I, I think about the two of you all the time as people who like, you know, helped me to like start to get those things. And I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful because I mean, I'm fully aware, like I, I have this experience as, as a woman, um, spending a lot of time trying to give people kind of like the, the grace of the possibility that they might understand and never having them understand it all. And, and I know how, how frequently I just want to be like, listen, I'm not going to spend my time telling you about this. <laughs> and, um, and so I'm like, I think of you and Arathy as people who like really didn't have to, but like took some time with me to like help me understand. I'm, I'm super grateful. Yeah, she is such a kind, like amazing human being. Well, I I definitely met her in that class. So, if, like, that makes me think maybe we were in that. Yeah, class yeah, we must have been. Yeah. Anyway, I totally interrupted you. So you were talking to Dr. Murphy, and he was like, "Maybe you should do this." And then what happened? Um, then we started trying to develop a plan for me to apply to some programs. Because I was like, I think you're right. I really would love this. And he knew that I wanted to study. I wanted to study black music beyond jazz in the U.S. Um, and he was like, this would definitely be a way for you to do that. So, you know, I started taking some of those courses in order to make it my like related field during my master's. Um, and we started making a plan for me to apply to some places. And he suggested that I think about some of the reading that I had done in his class or my other classes and try to figure out where those people taught yeah. and apply to those places. And I had read this, this article about um, like these, this cassette culture in Cambodia and communism and all of this um, that was written by the scholar, David Novak um, and was very, drawn to that style of writing yeah and found out where he was teaching and I mean I applied to a lot of places but I heard back from three about like you know maybe come interview and we'll see so I had planned a road trip with some friends in California anyway and during that trip I did some school interviews <laughs> while I was out there so that was how I ended up going to University of California Santa Barbara to meet some of the faculty I met with uh, David Novak. Wow. And to circle back to Arthi, she had applied to some of these same schools as well. And if I remember correctly, I think they offered her like a, um, you know, uh, one of the positions in the program. And she had a couple of offers and she decided to take another one. So I think I was only able to get in because she said no. <laughs> 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 so crazy to like know the person. <laughs> That's a trip. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was, it was kind of John Murphy's suggestion and all of that, that kind of put me on this path. You have these incredible stories of these professors, like kind of caring about you in this particular way. That's, I'm, I'm like a teeny tiny bit jealous about it. <laughs> If I'm being honest. <laughs> I, 
You know, I do feel really fortunate. It's not as if every professor I've ever had has, you know, yeah. done this, but there have just been those are a two, few. Those are two stories of like really attentive care from yeah. faculty. That's great. Yeah. Um, okay, so did you get a PhD or was it? I am just about finished with that. Wow, that's amazing. Where do you live now? I don't know. <laughs> I am currently in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, I will be here for another year. I, I moved to New England because I'm currently, as I finish my doctorate at UC Santa Barbara, I'm on a fellowship um, at Dartmouth, which is not here where I live, but close enough. So I commute. Um, I, I love it. I'm so like, I'm just, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm intrigued by like your whole, your whole evolution. And I just think it's great. Um, okay. So normally, like, I like to spend some time talking with people about the, like the podcast is called Artifice, um, which I say all the time, but like, I mostly just like it that it has the word art at the beginning. And I think it's a cool word, but also I think that what we do is kind of mysterious in these different ways. Um, and I'm always interested in like, you know, the, the, the interplay between like what's vulnerable about what you do versus what is like planned. And like, you know, maybe for a play on words, I can, you know, I can say like vulnerability and veneer. That's what's in my like podcast intro, but like, really, I just mean like, how do you get through like the stuff that's hard? Like, what are, what are the things you do? What are the things that people wouldn't guess about, like, how you are able to do what you do? Um, how do you balance, like, inspiration with, like, you know, practicality? I don't really care what you talk about. That's the kind of thing. What do you want to say? I think that one of the things that I really struggle with is balancing creativity with practicality, especially as I am working to finish my dissertation. So as someone who has, you know, very much become a creative in my adult and professional life, I am trying to treat everything with this kind of really attentive or ethereal sort of like artful you know, I want to have this really artful approach to the way that I write. Mm -hmm. And my advisor, who happens to be David Novak, that guy whose like article really <laughs> influenced me, yeah. is like, you just need to write. Like, <laughs> stop trying to make all of these connections. Stop trying. He's like, just get the words on the page. Go back. When you go back and edit it, that's when you make the artful connections. And that is a daily struggle with me. Every time I go to write, I want to write the greatest words the world has ever known. Yeah. Instead of just writing what I'm thinking in that moment, I want to wait for the exact right word to come to mind. I get it. it is, it's, yeah, that is my main struggle right now. And I guess to overcome that, I've had some really good suggestions as of late. Like someone very dear to me actually suggested that I just put, well, turn my brightness all the way down on my screen, 
put a piece of paper over my monitor so I can't even tell if I'm making typos and just write. And that works very well for me. It's, it makes me nervous because of just the way that my, my brain works. I want to see everything. I want to edit everything in real time, but I've been able to write a lot of mostly usable words (laughs) doing that. Um, what is your what is your dissertation on? Like, what what's the what's your title? Uh, the title changes too much to give it a title right now, but it is. Um, I did all of my field research in Detroit um, in the hip hop scene there, and I was initially interested in what I thought was some kind of like Detroit sound. I was like, I need to go figure out what it is about like this place that produces this kind of music. But what it's really morphed into as I got there and met people and started learning about some of the struggles with space in the city or like how people form their identity. Um, My dissertation now is about kind of the use of hip hop as a means for spatial reorientation. So the city is very quickly um, gentrifying and a lot of, it's a very black city for anyone who doesn't know, it's about 82% black. Um, and yeah, um, and you know, real estate developers and, and just various big money firms are kind of coming in and buying up neighborhoods or big plots of land and building lofts and pricing people out of their homes and just, so part of what I do is look at how people use hip hop to push against that whether that's active protest or just lyric reflection. Um, I like how people's identities are formed um, through participating in the hip hop scene. And I also write a lot about these narratives of of death and dying that appear a lot in the music. And I look at death as this very useful way to think about, again, reorientation or like how to form identity or how to kind of be birthed out of these seemingly negative situations. Yeah. Um, gosh. Okay. Yeah. So like, I'm so interested in identity, you know, like the way that we identify as artists and also, um, I don't know, like I, I, I'm such a broken record about this. Like every single episode, I'm like, have the same struggle of like, how do I ask people about these things? Um, Because I feel like in the asking of the question, I like lead the answer, no matter how I do it, you know, no matter how I ask it. But, but I, I, I think, I think maybe, so like, again, my, my motivations are like, I want for artists to be less mysterious. Like, I want for people to be able to look at what artists are doing and see it in a way that doesn't require the individual artist to be any sort of different kind of a person. So so that's one of my motivations. And when I talk about artifice, sometimes I think that artifice is just how you're seen. It has nothing to do with like what you're doing. It's like just a totally, it's someone else's perceptions. Um, and which is why I want to give artists the opportunity to like tell whatever that thing is that's not. So that's a thing. And then the other thing that I'm that I'm motivated by is 
I'd like to see a world where people were more curious and where people um, are more inclined to like think creatively about all kinds of things. And it, and of course, creative thinking doesn't belong to artists, but most of us are doing it a lot. Right. So you are like an expert in these things. Like you, I mean, at least as it pertains to like musicians in Detroit, um, I'd love to just hear you talk more about like, you could talk about your yourself or maybe talk more about like how art interacts with identity from the artist, between the artist and the art and between like the audience and the art or between the audience and the artist. Like, hmm. what do you know that you want to talk? Um, I can think of some particular moments during my my field work in Detroit where it became so apparent to me that the place that I was in was super important to the people in it in terms of them recognizing themselves but it was this very cyclical relationship so it's people are very much formed by the city or being Detroit but again Detroit is like nothing without these people at the same time who are so passionate about it. I think one of the things there is that that city has gotten such a bad rap in media for decades. Um, and there have been, you know, a lot of events that have happened there, be they like various uprisings to protest police or um, political corruption or you know, decades of job loss and like the auto industry's failings. And there have been a lot of things that have led to the particular image of Detroit that some people have. And there's also like, there's movies like RoboCop where like, you know, they present the city as this hyper violent place. So there are a lot of opinions about Detroit from outside of Detroit. And I remember being there and realizing that I had never met more friendly people in my entire life uh, than there. And I'm not even just saying that. It's it's the actual truth. I remember barely knowing anyone there. And every time I would try to, I, I like to go to coffee shops sometimes, sometimes breweries to just write. Yeah. And you can't go to a brewery or a bar there without someone coming up to talk to you and like buy you a drink without any motivations other than just trying to like be friendly and say hi. And I remember that happened to me so many times when I would go out in the city, would just end up meeting all kinds of people and then would eventually start asking them about like what music they listen to. And that's how I kind of started getting deeper into the hip hop scene there. And I remember going to a music video shoot and before the artists showed up, um, people were there just kind of like hanging out, having some drinks. And somebody was DJing from their phone or something, just playing music. And they were about to skip a song. And somebody said, you can't, you can't skip that. Like, it's, that's a Detroit artist. You can't skip that. Wow. Um, or like, you need to play that. That's a Detroit artist. And it, the songs all sounded really different from each other the connecting factor was that they were Detroit artists. Mm. And that was like what people wanted to listen to. 
it was that knowledge, that pride, that feeling that they got of like, even if people outside of here don't know what this is, like, this is us, this is ours. Um, Do you feel like um, creativity, like flourishes there in a different way because there's that kind of like inherent support? I do. I have seen artists have so much love for all of the art coming out of the city, you know, and it's, they support each other a lot too, which is something that was so beautiful to see. Like I'm still, I'm friends with a lot of these people and, you know, connected on social media and the way that people promote each other's stuff is still mind blowing to me. It is just I could open my phone right now and like go to Instagram and there would be someone reposting someone else's song right now or someone it's, it is constant there or yesterday, um, a, a poet and MC who I work with a lot had one of his poems published in a paper in Detroit. And I saw so many people on Facebook being like, you need to, go get this issue right now. And I read the poem and I texted him about it. And just, there's so much. That's really awesome. Like drive for Arthur. There's so much love for it. It's a very creative city. And there's like this unending well of support for it. Wow, that's incredible. That's 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 so beautiful. Um, is there anything that you want to say about like your artifice? Like, and again, it can be like, the artifice can live in like how people make assumptions about you. It can live in like the things that people wouldn't guess, like based on the decisions you make. It can live in like your own, maybe like different relationship with the art that you make. What do you think? I, I'm not sure if there's anyone who knows completely all of the different art worlds in which I'm involved. Yeah. Except for me. (laughs) I, which is something that is funny to me, but it's also something that I really like because even in this conversation with you, there are like art things that I've done that other people know about that like I have not brought up in this conversation. Do you want to say any of them? I mean, sure. Like some people know me as like a hip hop beat maker. Some people in Detroit know me only as that. Um, Some people know me only as an academic, you know, like this person who like writes articles, speaks at conferences. They don't know that I play trombone, that I have a degree in jazz. Then there's people that, you know, I went to North Texas with who don't know that like I grew up listening primarily to punk rock. And then there's, so it's just, yeah. I like having all of these different musical sides to where like no one can really guess what I listen to or what I make or there are like maybe particular parts of me that I present more um, because of the work that I do. Like no one's going to have any guesses about whether or not I listen to hip hop at this point in my life. But I like keeping other things kind of close to my chest to where you have to do a little bit of work to figure out like all of the things that, you know, that I'm into or that I make or that I enjoy. Why do you think that's important to you? 
Uh, because I'm an introvert, you know, and and I like my relationships to be deep and profound when they are forged. So I want people to have to do a little bit of work, you know. I I want people to show that they're that they're really interested in knowing me because there's just so much. You're, there's no way you would know who I am just meeting me a couple of times. And that's completely by design. Interesting. Yeah, man. I feel like I do like the exact opposite thing. Um, maybe I like possibly have some maturing to do along this line, but I feel like I'm always like, listen, I want you to understand me. Here's the guidebook. <laughs> I feel like that's like my entire MO. <laughs> See, I feel like once, once I know someone and I know like their motivations and everything, then I'm like super open. And then it's like, I'll just like dump everything out there. Just in the beginning, I'm very skeptical. I mean, I think that's probably safe. Like, I think, I think my particular like blend of stuff is just like, I'm, I'm naturally like very determined. And I think I'm an optimist. Like, I mean, I think like my natural makeup is very like, we can fix it. It'll be fine. We can do it. Like <laughs> it's very like determined and super like kind of it's positive. Um, and I think that combined with the fact that my parents just like truly never appreciated me or noticed me or, or anything has turned me into a person that's like, it's okay. I'll teach you how I'll teach you how to understand <laughs> who I am. Um, it's like a, it's a fix it kind of a thing, but it doesn't have great returns always. So I could probably like take a page out of your book. <laughs> I mean, mine doesn't have great returns always either, but I will say that like the, f- the strong relationships and close friends that I have are people who have like earned it. They have shown, you know, they have proven themselves worthy. <laughs> they have, they've shown that they're invested. And some of that comes from being like a military brat who moved a lot too. And it's the same, it all goes back to like, if I'm going to invest time in this, sure. I need to know. So it's like, what are you going to bring to the table here? Like, what are you going to show? Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I think I just have one more question for you, which is, um, you know, your, your goal in the beginning, you know, of this particular thing was to like help people understand stories that are not being heard. Um, How do you feel like currently about like the work that you have done and the work that you're doing? Um, Like maybe outside of your dissertation or maybe that's all you're thinking about right now. Yeah, Um, it kind of is. (laughs) But yeah, or, or maybe like, maybe instead I'll ask like, what's the next thing that you want to try to help people understand or... Well, I think that I've I've kind of I'm I'm reaching that goal finally. So I just um got an appointment as an assistant professor um at William and Mary that'll start next year. And I'll be in the music department teaching courses that I design. So everything from like, you know, race and music or courses on sound and all of that. So I am I've like taking this very roundabout way <laughs> to get to the thing that I wanted to do when I was 16 or 17. Yeah. Um, so I think I am 
getting to that, you know, but I just, even in all the writing and everything I do, I am so wrapped up in trying to present these unheard stories, A, so that people hear them, but also so that people maybe think differently about the stories that they know or the stories that they hear, you know. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you like, <laughs> I think like th- Facebook is tricky because like, um, like Facebook always shows me your posts, like you're <laughs> all over my newsfeed. And so like, um, so I think sometimes I can assume that like the people that Facebook shows to me, it's like showing me to them too, which I, I know is not true, but you know, I'm, I'm doing, I have this album coming out tomorrow actually called masks. Awesome. And and that's like the whole, my whole goal with that project too. And obviously like I have different stories to tell, um, you know, and, and my toolbox for understanding these things is, is necessarily different. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's like what I'm lit up about right now too. Like I'm, I'm doing it in a different way, but, um, yeah, like trying to get people to think differently about the stories they've been told including about themselves, including, you know, I mean, there's, there's like just nothing that's more important to me, like at this moment than, than that goal too. Um, which is one reason why I wanted to interview you. Cause I know that like, I know that you are about that stuff. Um, yeah. on this like very day, like I know, I know that I know enough to know that you're the kind of person who's passionate about like, all of the stories um, on on this day, like is, is there, if you're anything like me and maybe you are, I will get like, I get like a little attached to like a subtopic, you know, <laughs> like, sure. and it's like all that I want to talk about and my husband will be like, enough. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> is there anything in particular that you're like super buzzy about like right now? Yes. And I'm going to try to keep it from going too deep down the rabbit hole. Say whatever you want, Alex. I am obsessed with the concept of echo. Um, And it's something that I'm currently writing about in this particular chapter of my dissertation. But I'm thinking about echo and all these linear and nonlinear and temporal, just all these different ways. So like I'm thinking about the natural occurrence of an echo is being the, you know, decaying of a sound after it occurs, but how that changes if you record an echo, because then it technically can never escape. Um, if you can just recall it whenever you want. So I'm thinking about echo as being this recorded space of like deadness that you can recall over and over. Um, and I'm thinking about echo as being kind of like this haunted sphere. I'm thinking about just how people performing along with recordings is an example of echo. I'm thinking about me recalling these experiences I have with music as various echoes. So that's my obsession right now is all things echo. Oh my gosh, I'm more into that than I can ever say. (laughs) I want to hear you say so many more things about it. Um, uh, I mean, do you, do you think at all about like echo in like the Greek mythology? Like, is that part of it for you? That has been a little part of it. Yeah. Um, there, uh, there are so many things to say. Um, Why are you interested in that? 
uh, because this particular this particular case study I'm writing about in this dissertation chapter is this recording that I first heard when I was in Detroit, where um, it's a rapper who's now deceased, um, and it's a song about him having these premonitions that he was going to die. So it's almost as if he like kind of predicted that this death would happen. But my first experience with this song was being at a club and seeing a bunch of people out on the dance floor, like drinking and like rapping along with it. Cause everybody except for me knew the song. Um, and in reflecting back on it, then listening to the song on my own, I noticed there's a really strong like echo effect in the recording, like a digital echo effect. So I started thinking about the track as him performing with his ghost, like the fact that I could hear him and then like traces of him at the same time yeah. saying all these things. That's what really kind of pushed me down this echo path. Wow, I love that. That's so rich and I mean, I'm trying to like think of how to say like it's almost like a an, a a type of lens with which you could like see anything, which is my favorite type of creative exercise. Yes, absolutely. That's awesome. I'm 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 um I'm fully taken with this idea. I can't wait to hear more. <laughs> um, well, I think we've pretty much done it here. So um, so I always ask everybody at the very end, what's your dream collaboration on this day? Um, between? Anything. People can be dead. They can be alive. It can be mixed media. It can be anything you want. Oh it's, my really gosh. Just, it's really just a, a different way to ask who who lights you up you know or like what what's your dream collaboration what would you love to do i think right now my dream collaboration would be to do absolutely anything with missy elliott whether that was like cooking dinner or making music or like going for a walk in the park just listening to her talk about what it's like to be missy elliott yeah wow i think me and Missy is my dream collab right now. That's perfect. Okay, tell everybody where to find you and your stuff, and that's it. Uh, you can find my articles if you search my name, Alex Blue. Uh, you can find me in Current Musicology. You can find me on various academic websites, Dartmouth, UC Santa Barbara. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Alex Blue V. if you like very... Uh, radical content. That's the place to find me being my most outlandish. Uh, My guess is that if people are listening to this podcast, they hopefully do. I hope (laughs) that's what my listeners are like. Um, What about like, do you have like a name for like your beat making or is that something that you keep separate? Um, Separate. I mean, I go by Blue the Fifth in that world, but I, I have some beats that have been used in podcasts recently or um, book promos, commercials, random things like that. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Alex, thank you so, so much for talking with me. It has been like such a joy. Yeah, it was really nice. I loved it. Well, um, if you want, we can, we can like chat for a second longer, but let's say, let's say bye to the listeners. All right. Bye, everyone. Take care. Bye, listeners. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Artifice. Our music is by Jerem Hansen and artwork by Sarah Keel. If you'd like to recommend a professional artist for an interview on the podcast, please send me a note through my website, emvocals.com. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again. Have a great week.